Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 101 of Shut Up and Wrestle, the first new episode of the brand new year 2024. And my guest this week will be Steve Generelli. Longtime wrestling fan and frequent co-host of my favorite wrestling podcast, the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. We'll get to that in just a moment, my conversation with Steve. A few things I want to talk about before we get there. Quite a number of topics this week coming out of the holiday week that to me are of interest to listeners of this show, to fans of old school wrestling. First of all, I just have to say... Thank you to everyone for the kind words about last week's episode 100 with Jim Cornette. I was glad to see that everybody really enjoyed that. I was able to coax Jim out of his shell and get him to speak up for once in his life and share his opinions with the world. It was difficult, but I managed to do it. And I'm glad that you enjoyed listening to it, and I'm grateful to Jim for doing that. And now we roll along into the next 100 episodes of the show. So uh, a couple of things. First thing I want to mention, and actually this is the last passing of 2023. He passed away during the final week of the year, right up at the end of the year. I'm talking about Masashi Ozawa, best known to fans in North America as, of course, Killer Khan. Killer Khan, to me, will always be best remembered for his runs in the WWF. He had a very memorable run in the early 80s, of course. Lots of people remember the injury angle with Andre the Giant. He later came back in the late 80s, about 87 or so, and I have great memories of that period because he was kind of brought in. A lot of fans watching at that time will remember there was sort of like this double threat to Hulk Hogan's title coming out of WrestleMania 3 after he had beaten Andre the Giant going into the summer of 87. You had Killer Khan and you had the one-man gang, and they both came in to sort of challenge Hogan on the house show circuit. So I remember that very clearly, Killer Khan filling me with dread as a young boy. But also, he did a lot of other things in pro wrestling. He had a great run for example, in Mid-South Wrestling, among many other places. And so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, we remember the life and legacy of Masashi Ozawa, a.k.a. Killer Khan. like to make mention of World's End, AEW World's End, which happened on December 30th at the Nassau Coliseum. 
I'm grateful to AEW and particularly to Adam Hopkins, the public relations director at AEW and my old friend from the WWE days for granting me a media pass to the show. I was able to represent the wrestling news at the post-show media scrum, which some of you may have witnessed slash experienced on YouTube. I believe that I coaxed the longest ever response from Tony Khan during that media scrum. You might want to check it out if you haven't already. It was great catching up with friends and colleagues, including Kevin McElvaney and Al Castle of PWI, as well as my old buddies Keith Elliott Greenberg and Anthony Calley from the WWE magazine days. And I even got to see master photographers, George Napolitano and George Tejinos. So a wonderful time was had by all. Thank you once again to AEW for granting me a media pass to World's End. And of course, we have to mention the departure of the longtime executive TV producer at WWE. I'm talking about Kevin Dunn. We never thought that this day would come, that Kevin Dunn is no longer the executive director and producer of WWE's television. Kevin Dunn resigned as of the end of the year after a tenure of about 40 years in WWE. Kevin first came to the company in 1984. Of course, his father, Dennis Dunn, was a producer for WWF television going back to the Vince McMahon senior days when the TV product was not even produced in-house. It was produced by an outside company. And so the Dunn family was always close to the McMahon family. Kevin came on board in the mid-80s. And by the early 90s, after the departure of Nelson Swegler, Kevin Dunn was the head honcho of TV production, the man most considered to be the closest to the ear of Vince McMahon. And I know I could tell you during my time there, the only one in the company more powerful than Kevin was Vince McMahon. And um, he really shaped the look and feel, whether you liked it or hated it, of the WWF slash WWE product over the years. So there's going to be a lot more drastic changes to come with this TKO acquisition slash merger. This is just one example of that. So we have to make mention and mark the departure of Kevin Dunn from WWE. We will see how that will affect the WWE product. Now, that was a lot of ground to cover, just as I said it would be. However, it is now time to get to this week's conversation. Now, as I said, the Stick to Wrestling podcast with John McAdam is a wrestling podcast that I listen to every week, and I look forward to it every week, especially the episodes when Steve Generelli is the co-host. I've wanted to get him on the show for a very long time. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We talk about so many topics. We talk about the ascension of wrestling versus the decline of boxing. We talk about the possible heat between the Sheik and Ric Flair, um, the legacies of Gorilla Monsoon, Lou Thez, Bruno San Martino going in the WWE Hall of Fame, memorable magazine covers, and a whole lot more. This is a conversation that you're going to love. And I'm going to take you to it right now.
Okay, so it's my pleasure here on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome someone to the show whom you very likely know if you're a regular listener to other Arcadian Vanguard podcasts. Believe it or not, there are some out there. He is a longtime wrestling fan, even longer than me, if you can believe that. And the co-host, I want to say, how should we put it? Frequent, the frequent co-host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast with John McAdam. I'm talking about Steve Generelli. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I've been a fan of yours, uh, you know, going back to the Chic book and before. And uh, I want to tell you that uh, I've been listening since day one on on your podcast. Uh, you had Blue Media in episode one. And uh, when you invited me to be a guest on the show, I kind of went back and looked through uh, the archives, if you will, and listened to some of the great uh, shows with Jeff Walton, Tom Burke, Scott Teal. I mean, yeah, kind of like the great tradition that Brian started with the 605 show. I think you really have kind of grabbed the mantle and continued this great legacy of having all these really interesting wrestling historians and wrestling guests. And, and your archive of shows is really worthwhile and really worth going back and revisiting. I've tried to create a wrestling history salon. That's the way I look at it. It's like the it's like the French Enlightenment of wrestling history. In fact, <laughs> I'm going to start doing, I haven't done this yet. I always talk about this, but I have the premium Zoom. So I'm going to start doing these group <laughs> episodes, you know, where I have like a bunch of people on. I'm right. I'm scared to do it because it's hard to control so many people and you don't want to have everybody just talking over everybody. But I, I will do it. But but I will say that, you know, Brian, Brian last uh, his show, what he was doing with the 605 was a big inspiration to me doing this. And I've told him that because I had always had in the back of my head the idea to do a podcast and something that was focused on history of wrestling. And I never, you know, I just wasn't properly motivated until I started listening to his show. And I caught it kind of late in the game. Like I listened to a lot of the episodes that were already archived. And I remember just being blown away and thinking like, wow, there's actually, what it showed me was there's an audience for it. There's like a community of interested people that are looking for quality stuff, people talking about wrestling history beyond something that's just like the Chris Farley show on SNL. You know what I mean? And right. so when I heard him, I was like, okay, it's doable. And, you know, this is a great example of it. And I'm going to, you know, jump in and finally do it. No, I'm really glad you did. And I mean, uh, I think, you know, you and I are both fans of that TV show billions and, uh, I think it's interesting, you know, this is a show with with great actors. It's none none of the super, super elite high caliber sopranos and madmen, but it's it's in that in that same rarefied air. And here they had an episode where, you know, the great John Malkovich is talking about turning heel and he says in his Russian accent, kind of like Andre did in eighty seven. <laughs> and it's like 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 you know what you're talking about with Brian and what you've done on this show people that love wrestling so much i mean it, it has crossed over into the mainstream i mean there are people literally intelligent people like you and i and and thousands millions of others that, that love classic wrestling and uh, that tv show found a way to incorporate it in storylines but the, the people like us do exist it's hard to believe i know and and have you noticed cuz i've noticed this that um in recent years 
there seems to be a lot more, I don't know if it's because of Twitter or maybe because of Peacock and so much streaming out there. There's a lot more talk about wrestling history than there used to be. Even in, you know, I, I'm even just talking the last handful of years. Um, it seems like um, even young people who weren't really around at the time seem to be, maybe this is a, a sign of good things to come. They seem to actually be interested in learning. There's definitely a segment of the fan base that's fascinated with talking about, you know, the territories and things like that. Like I never remember hearing this much, maybe it's just kind of the company I keep. I don't know, but I never remember hearing this much discussion. It was usually just a very, very select group of people, you know, and now it seems to be much more. Well, you know, you have uh, all these new avenues that we didn't have years before. You have, uh, I mean, I never would have ever imagined, I'm sure John McAdam would agree with me, um, would, would we ever see the day where you'd have the sportingnews.com has a wrestling page or, uh, uh, you know, ESPN.com has a, a wrestling section. I mean, we would have never fathomed that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago because, you know, when when people like McAdam and I were becoming fans back in the 80s or the 70s, wrestling was so looked down upon as this, oh, you know, that's fake, don't you? You know, stuff <laughs> like that. And, and, and of course, all these all of today's sports writers that grew up watching Randy Savage and Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, you know, they they learned with their own eyes and their life experiences that these guys are incredible entertainers. And now they're 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 so different than the. Jimmy Breslin's or the guys from the seventies that just looked upon wrestling as this, you know, terrible affront on society. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned Breslin. He's like one of my favorite humans who ever lived, but there's people, <laughs> people like that, or, you know, um, Pete, uh, Pete Hamill, you know, those kind of guys, you just think about how <laughs> so many of them must be turning over in your <laughs> grave. Think about right. it because you're, you know, you're old enough to remember like me, like you said, uh, there was a time where wrestling was almost like in the category like pornography, right. especially, it was. and not just in mainstream society, but especially among sports journalists and right. sports writers, it was an absolute laughing stock for the longest time, for generations. And so for people our age, I know you're a little older than I am and John is too, but the idea, like I guess if you're young, it's like you just take it in stride, but the idea that Forbes is putting out stories about backstage politics in <laughs> WWE or who's going to get the title at WrestleMania Forbes, like yeah. Forbes, like Malcolm Forbes publication <laughs> and, you know, sports illustrated, like you said, doing this. I mean, it would have been unheard of. It would have been, you would have a revolt on your hands and uh, among the writers. And especially the thing that got me, my grandfather, as I've said many times on here, people are probably sick of it by now, but he was in boxing. He was a coach. He was a fighter. He was around. He was around wrestling people adjacently over the years because it's in the you know it's a ring sport, so to speak. You run into some of the same people. Like he knew Willie Gilsenberg and things like that. These kind of Damon Runyon esque people, <laughs> but he put it up. He put up with it. For me, he tolerated it. He took me to see WrestleMania on closed circuit and that kind of thing. But it was a complete joke to him, you know, like an absolute joke. And not only that, but it, um, a real it was that old attitude that that requiem for a heavyweight kind of attitude right. that it was the ultimate come down. 
Like I remember him telling me when he was a young man, like he must have been in his 20s when Primo Carnera started wrestling in the 40s after he was broke, you know. He had been the world heavyweight boxing champion and he was Italian. So my grandfather was obsessed with him. My grandfather heard Primo Carnera is coming to the local arena in Brooklyn. There was an arena called MacArthur Stadium in 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 uh, Diker Heights, Brooklyn. Okay. And they would they would have wrestling there in the 40s. And he told me the story of how he he went there because he wanted it, he out of morbid curiosity to see Primo Carnera wrestle. And the story he told me, like it's hard to put into words of just like he sat down, you know, and he's watching some of the prelims or whatever. And he said the match started, Carnera's in the ring. And he said to me, as soon as he saw the way he described it, he's like this fat slob walks across the ring. He picks up Primo Carnera, picks him up, the heavyweight champion of the world, and slams him down on the floor, on the mat, like a piece of garbage. My grandfather said, I just got up in disgust and just walked out of the arena and went home. <laughs> like that was, but that was the prevailing attitude, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and when, uh, I mean, when Hulk Hogan finally made the cover of Sports Illustrated a couple of weeks after WrestleMania won, the, apparently they just just like the swimsuit issue they got a ton of letters saying i want to unsubscribe to your magazine this is an outrage wrestling on the cover of sports illustrated so we've come a long long, long way in about 40 years and the the ultimate full circle and i had to think of my my poor grandpa may he rest in peace as i'm recording this it's actually the anniversary of his passing but um when i him. i noticed on the espn website okay if you go to, and it's been this way for a long time. If you go to the menu bar, right, they have all the different sports. Mm-hmm. Not only is wrestling up there, it's like baseball, football, wrestling, hockey, like it's all there. You can't find boxing unless you <laughs> click. You, you have to click on the drop down that says other sports. Right. I mean, even MMA has a tab in the in It's the under miscellaneous at this point. <laughs> but but boxing is under miscellaneous. And that that's when you think, oh, my God, re- look at how it's changed. Boxing was the legit respected sport. I mean, even though it was dirty as hell, too. But I mean, it was. It was like at some points in the 20th century, you can make an argument it was most popular American sport, at least up there with baseball. And now it's in other and wrestling is at the top. <laughs> like like what what one of those guys back then could have predicted that? You know, No one. No, not one. But uh, but let me ask you this. Um, while we're on the subject of Italian wrestlers, <laughs> um, your, your friend Mike Sempervivi did a fantastic uh, first person account of Bruno's last match with uh, with him and Hogan against Bundy and one man gang on the 605 show. He gave this great, great you know, recap of that match. Uh, let me ask you, because I've never heard anyone give a first person account of them being at Bruno's Hall of Fame induction. And I know you were there for that. What was that like? I was, I was, and I brought my kids. I had to like educate them on this, <laughs> and they knew because they they grew up around me. I'm their dad. You know, whenever I would talk about, we'd watch the Hall of Fame every year, and sure. I'd always bring up his name and be like, you know, there was this guy named Bruno San Martino. Yeah, yeah, Dad, <laughs> whatever, whatever. But I'd be like, this guy, it's like the Baseball Hall of Fame not having Babe Ruth in it, and I was like, oh, it's such a joke. And then when it finally was announced, this is funny. They came to me. My kids, my kids who were like 12 and nine at the time. And they were, I think, right. This was 10 years ago. They were like, daddy, that guy you always talked about. 
<laughs> they said that he's going in the WWE Hall of Fame. That's how I found out. And yeah, I mean, that was an amazing night because you had people come out to that who never go to any wrestling anymore, who don't. You could just tell being there, like being in that crowd, mm -hmm. there was that element. You think about it, too. This was 10 years ago. Uh, Bruno, at that point, had last been in the WWF maybe, what? Uh, April of uh, 88. Yeah, so, so 25 20, years later. 25 years in the past. Mm -hmm. He had wrestled maybe, you know, not long before that. And mm -hmm. there were what I'm trying to say is there were definitely people in that crowd who had seen him wrestle. It was still conceivable there could have been people who were there that had seen him as the champion. And you could just feel it when he came out and uh, people started chanting Bruno. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, I've got, I get emotional thinking of it. <laughs> it, it was the closest I'll ever come. Let's put it that. So it meant a lot to me. It was the closest I will ever come. I'm sitting there with my kids and just like soaking that in. And it really was in a weird way. I think he mentioned it in his speech. Or somebody did, maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger who inducted him. Mm -hmm. It was like his last main event at the Garden. That's right, what it felt right. like because he was he was the main event that night. Oh sure, yeah, and it, it was it was a night I'll never forget. It's just unbelievable. But uh, um, as someone in attendance, did you ever think Backlund would end his speech? Because I guess that went on forever. Well, before <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to mention that. Before I get to that, there's one other thing, which I don't know if you could tell from the TV broadcast, but um, they always do the thing at the end, or I, they used to. I'm not sure if they still do it, where all the Hall of Famers take a bow at the end. Yes, the yeah, I, that's my favorite part, actually. Right. And for, for whatever reason, I think it went long like it always goes long. Mm -hmm. um, people were starting to leave while the final bow was taking place. And as people are filing out, my kids are ready to go. And I'm like, hold on a second, because I'm looking down on the stage. And as anybody can remember, it's the image in center stage. It's Vince McMahon holding up Bruno San Martino's hand. That was, and the, I could, that was the money shot. Yeah, the money shot. And I could never really interpret the, the, the emotion that Vince was feeling in that moment. It's hard to say. Looking at his face, it could have been either... Um, immense pr pride for getting to this point, because I do think, believe it or not, I really, truly think this, and I've seen very little dis disprove this to me. I think that Vince never lost respect for Bruno, right. and I think it was because he was one of his dad's guys, right. and he always respected, to one degree or another, his dad's edicts of who he had to take care of right. and who he had to respect. And I say that because if you notice, Really never, other than little, little tiny things, especially when you compare what they did with Bread and Hogan and Savage. He never took shots at him. He never made fun of him. He never did any kind of like public burials of him. And I really think there was this unspoken respect. But I couldn't tell if it was partly that in, in his face or partly I finally got the son of a bitch kind of expression <laughs> on his face. You know what I mean? But it was a moment. And I said, we're not going anywhere. We are not leaving this building until they leave the stage i am gonna take this in for as long as i can this very very surreal moment but the backland thing that was very sad to me because it, i felt like it was such a contrast from with from bruno right because if you think about it on paper they're both getting inducted on the same night and which I think is the only way it could have happened because that was Backlund's thing. He always refused to go in until Bruno was in. 
So they induct them on the same night in the garden where they had their most memorable moments make perfect sense. Except with Backlund, because he had, I don't want to say tainted. I mean, it's business. He did what he had to do and he had a great run when he came back in the 90s. But he tainted his legacy a little bit in terms of how he was remembered and everybody remembering him as the lunatic, Mr. Backlund, right, that's right. who I think, honestly, he just literally became that person. I I, I just <laughs> think he just became him. And so his whole induction was much more, it seemed like much more of a joke, which was very sad because it should have been almost as cool and prestigious as the Bruno one. And it really wasn't at all. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that, you know, the generation that was there wasn't looking at Bob as God. This is the guy that had great matches with Valentine, Morocco, and Patera. They were more looking at him as, oh, in the late 90s, you know, he was a second to Kurt Angle or he was a co-manager with the Sheik for uh, Rikishi when he was the Sultan. I mean... You know, it was just sad. I mean, they didn't remember his prime. They remembered hit when he was kind of a secondary character. It was unfortunate. Yeah, and he got, and his speech went on and on and on. And as people know, he got like, he basically got like the Sandman Apollo theater treatment with um, with Kane coming out. Right, that's right. Right, it was Kane. And then right. I think actually Kane came out. And then I think maybe Vince came out. Like there was more than one person that came out. Yes. He just kept going. And another thing, I've never told this story, but. It's a very bizarre story, but I almost got into a fight and I don't get into fights. I almost got into a fight at during Backlund's induction. (laughs) I'll tell you what what happened. There was this guy. There was this drunk, this like fallen down drunk guy on the other end of maybe like three, four seats down from me where I was sitting. And I had my kids there, so I, I was trying my best to behave. But this guy, he was an older guy. So he had been a fan when Backlund was the champion. I think he was I don't know why he was there to be honest with you but but he was talking through the whole backland induction and just trashing him and making fun of him <laughs> and saying to the guy with him cuz he had like a much younger guy with him and he was just kept going on and on about oh this guy god he was so boring i remember him <laughs> this guy sucked let me tell you oh my god i was so glad when when they brought in Hogan, this guy was the worst, man. He was the shits. And he kept going. But see, like, all right, everybody's entitled to an opinion. But he kept going. And I'm trying to listen to the speech. And I turned to the guy and I was just like, why are you here? Why did you come here? Did you come here to just make fun of the people getting inducted in the Hall of Fame? Because I've seen people do this at other hall of fame inductions and things that WWE has done or, or they'll, they'll raz the inductees. And I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing here? You bought a ticket to be here. What? So you could make fun of the people going in the hall of fame. I, I said, the guy, the guy was the top guy for six years. He was the world's champion for six years. And it sounds like you were probably here for a little bit of that. So, sure. wh- you know, why don't you, you know, we've heard enough that kind of thing. <laughs> And his friend is like trying to get him to stop. And like I said, he's drunk and my kids are there. So I'm trying to like not go too far with it, but it pissed me off and I don't piss off easy. Did did, did he kind of chill out after that? I hope he did. Yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) The Brian Solomon effect took, took place there. Yes. But yeah, that was, that was a great class. You had Mick Foley went in um, and I, I really, I impressed my kids. I like to impress my kids because I texted Mick right before he went out 
to congratulate him and he and he thanked me and I showed cool. my kids. I was like, That's hey really guys, cool. look, look, I was like, he's in the locker room right now. <laughs> and see that? That's from him. He's back there backstage right now. But they had him, they had Trish, Trish and they Trish. had Booker T. Right. Who, who also g- gave a great speech with his brother inducting him. I mean, yeah. You know, everybody talks about Bruno and to a certain degree Backlund, but that was a great class. No, it, it it was. It, they yeah. also had Donald Trump, but it yeah, was yeah, it was a great class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you, they not you know we we avoid politics on this show, sure, but I will course. say that we New Yorkers who knew him when who knew him <laughs> who knew him quite well. We gave him what we like to call the Bronx cheer when he came out that night for his Hall of Fame speech. So anyway, yes. Well, I, I, I'm probably the person in America that probably has watched or rewatched that particular Hall of Fame the most times. And and I've even rewatched a gazillion times the next night at WrestleMania where they all walk out in the freezing cold. And Bruno had his really nice sharp suit on. He looked like a million bucks. He got a huge ovation after that last uh, piece of uh, person that uh, got resoundingly booed by the crowd, which we'll just <laughs> leave it at that. But anyhow, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to ask your opinion on this too, as while we're talking about legends and, and how people within the business think of them. I, I, I've, I've seen some things on um, YouTube and Facebook where Sabu has talked about his uncle, the Sheik, Ed Farhat, you know, you're the guy that you wrote about. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how Ric Flair supposedly never liked his uncle and never respected him. Do you know anything about that? Is that is that just uh, fantasy or is there any truth to that as far as you know? Well, I do know they never worked with each other. So, I mean, that's very telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes that tells a story, you know, um, you can look at, his match record and I like scoured every possible result I could find. You know, I went beyond, you know, just cage match and wrestling data and those kind of sites. Like I really tried to get as much as I could. And I'm sure I still missed things, but I, I can go on the record and I'm go on a limb and say that if Ric Flair ever wrestled the the original Sheik, there would be a mention of it somewhere. We would, we would know. Oh, sure. So, you know, it's interesting to me because like, for example, he almost never wrestled Jack Briscoe. You can find one or two matches, and I think only one of them is a title defense. And it was in the middle of nowhere. It was in like some nothing town somewhere. And I think, oh, sorry for the people who may live there, but, um, <laughs> and I think that speaks volumes because I know from people I've talked to that Briscoe did not respect the Sheik. There are mm-hmm. stories about that. In fact, Dave um, Dave Brzezinski, he wouldn't mind me telling you, he told the story on this show. Dave Brzezinski told me a story about being at Cauliflower Alley uh, the year the Sheik died and kind of, you know, I think it, I'm not sure if it had just happened or the news was just getting out there and the internet, you know, really wasn't that big yet at that time. And Dave telling me that some people had really disrespectful responses. And he said that uh, Briscoe was one of those people. In fact, I think he, Briscoe was the one where he said, Oh, you know, I'm the I'm Dave Brzezinski. Nice to meet you. I was the last manager of the Sheik, you know, and he he passed away. He just recently passed away. And Briscoe said something like um, couldn't happen to a nicer guy or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think he I remember him saying that Johnny Powers had a similarly dismissive response. So, look, the Sheik uh, was not what you'd call one of these universally liked people in wrestling. You know how you'll sometimes hear, nobody ever had a bad word to say about this guy. Well, he wasn't one of those guys. Right. There were people that didn't like him, didn't respect him. There were people that, there were bridges that he burned. 
I don't know what particularly the issue might have been with Flair, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was one. I mean, it's it makes you think because Flair, he never came across as one of those guys. Like he wasn't with Briscoe, for example. You can understand I, part of it was the idea that whether you agree with it or not, this wrestling, this guy is beneath me. It was almost like the Thez thing. It's like, I'm the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. I'm an NCAA right. wrestler. I'm the real deal. Yeah, credentials. This, this guy's a cartoon. He's going to try and stab me with a pencil. You know, <laughs> even Bruno, in, Bruno said in his book and other places that he did not enjoy working with the Sheik because he said he felt like he was cheating the fans. Right. He did not like going in there and having a match that wasn't competitive, that wasn't we're going to give you your money's worth. We're not just going to chase each other around the ring for two minutes and somebody gets counted out. Like he didn't like doing that at all. He didn't like doing that kind of thing. So maybe that was the issue. Maybe Flair felt, you know, cause we know Flair and the kind of matches that he had. I mean, he was like a workhorse. He was, you know, he wasn't a shooter or anything, but he liked to go in there and perform and really show off. He liked to show off. And the Sheik is not really somebody you can show off with. You know, he's not going to bump. He's not going right, to right. really. So that maybe that was it. I'm just speculating of just him thinking, well, what am I going to do with this guy? You know? Well, one thing I thought was very fascinating was uh, two of Flair's contemporaries, uh, Kevin Sullivan and Jim Cornette, when they had that event in Detroit, the Great American Bash show where the Sheik came back for that tag team match. And and uh, Sullivan and Cornette both said they were completely in awe of Sheik when Sheik arrived in his limo or what he had, and he was all dressed to the nines. And they they, they believed that it, just seeing the Sheik in 1988, it took them back to their youth and, and and they were in complete awe. But meanwhile, Flair acts like this guy's a piece of garbage. I, I guess what you said, Brian, you've covered every base. I mean, you know, he wasn't he wasn't universally beloved. I mean, you really hit on that right. Uh, but I I'm, I'm a big fan of the Sheik, and and what you wrote about him in the book, it it, it really enhanced my appreciation of him even more because I, I love the book and I love uh, I think the Sheik was such a unique character. I really appreciate what he brought to wrestling. Well, I don't know. I don't know if we could assume that Flair thought he was a piece of garbage. I mean, that's that, <laughs> that's definitely making an extreme leap of logic, right? right. It's possible. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, all I can say is with someone like Flair, who wrestled as long as he did and had as many matches as he did in as many places, if you have a major attraction like Sheik that he didn't work with, there's got to be a reason, you know? He would... Uh, I mean, I know one part of it is the Sheik was sort of not on the national scene anymore, even by as early yeah. as the early 80s. Well, by the time right. Flair got the belt, the Sheik was kind of already being left behind by the right. American business. So that might have been part of it as well. I mean, Flair at the height of his powers in the 80s is not going to be working little indie shows in Michigan and Indiana somewhere, you know, I mean, he's going to be on, on bigger cards. He's going to be working for more legit promotions and things. So maybe that, that could be part of why they didn't cross paths as well, because um, he was, I mean, the Sheik, you know, it's funny with Flair. I remember the few times that I had to interview him and talk to him mm -hmm. and this should come as no surprise to any, anybody, but he he would be prickly about his age. That was a topic he was always very sensitive about his really? age. So sometimes yeah, Hogan was like that too. So when you would bring things up that would hint at how old they were, sometimes they 
they would bristle a little. Like when Luthez died, this is a great story. I've never told. We're breaking, we're telling great stories. When Luthez died, I got some comments from people in the locker room because I was working for WWE at the time. Mm-hmm. And some of them were, were very interesting and memorable. I think if I remember right, I think X-Pac told me something I couldn't even print where he was just like, <laughs> I don't give a shit about loot. That's like, it was something like that, which is interesting because over the years, Sean Waltman has become much more vocal about wrestling history. He's even been on the six Oh five and talked about old time, you know, territorial wrestling. So, you know, he, he might've just been in his kind of degeneration X phase. (laughs) He was just like, ah, who gives a damn blue blah. He never, he doesn't mean anything to me. When I tried to get a comment from flair, he looked at me and he gave me this annoyed look and he goes, why, what do you think that I wrestled him as if to say, you know, how old do you think I am? And I kind of stumbled and, you know, I'm not going to get into an argument, but in my head, I'm thinking like, well, wait a minute here. You wrestled Buddy Rogers, right? You wrestled, you won the U.S. title for Bobo Brazil. Come on now. Like those guys are contemporary of Thez. And Luthez was wrestling full-time through the 70s, at least. Um, it's very feasible that, I mean, he never did, but it's very feasible that Ric Flair, a young Ric Flair, absolutely could have wrestled Luthez. I mean, Luthez, as I recently uncovered, uh, Luthez wrestled Coco Beware in Memphis, okay? Wow. So it's very possible that Luthez may have rest- could have wrestled Ric Flair. But he kind of bristled at that notion that, like, well, why are you asking me about Ric Flair? Because I'm old? Like, that kind of thing. That, that's funny. I, I, I wanted to mention to you, since you're I mean, I'm sorry. Why Why are you asking me about Luthez? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted, to, I wanted to tell you, Brian, because you're writing the book about Monsoon. I wanted to say uh, I had the good fortune of seeing him wrestle in 1979 in Binghamton. And uh, and I'm pretty sure he was the uh, the road agent that night or, or the guy that was really running the show that night because uh, I was I was a kid. I was like 14 or 15 years old. My dad and I would always sit in Section 9 at the Broome County Arena. This is like a, basically, you know, like a hockey arena. It was like for wrestling, they would sit about six or 7,000 seats max. And uh, we would always sit in the corner where the heels would come out. And we'd always get there super early. And I saw him. Yeah, with his windbreaker on, and he, I think he was there early, and I think he was putting all the, everything in motion, and the guys from the New York State Athletic Commission were there, and he was, you know, getting it all set up, and it was, the main event was him against Bobby Duncombe, who was the number one heel in the WWF at the time, and they had a standard main event match, I think it was probably your typical eight or nine minute match, and Monsoon, uh, you know, let him, uh, you know, let Duncombe go over him. I think uh, I think even uh, Gorilla Juice in the match, and uh, Bobby Duncombe hit him with a big bulldogger move, which is his big finishing move, kind of like Barry Windham would use in later years, and uh, and and that match was a, it was a good match, and it was also setting up. Uh, two matches that they would do in Binghamton in January of 80. They had a match with Duncombe against Backland. And uh, Duncombe won that match, too, via blood. And then they had a rematch with Duncombe against Backland, I think, in February or March with Pat Patterson as a special guest referee. So so Monsoon that night in Binghamton really put a little angle and uh, put a little chain of matches together. It was quite interesting. It was quite interesting to see him uh, as a wrestler because by then he was really getting ready to kind of shut things down. And this was 1980, you said? 
the match with in Binghamton that I saw him wrestle was in uh, the uh, fall. Uh, actually, it was November of '79. Okay, yeah, because that was. Well, he didn't even have a year left in him, basically. Right. I mean, uh, that right. was, um, and he was pretty wound down even by that point. I mean, to be honest with you, one of the things that you find when you look at his career and the behind the scenes versus the in the ring and all that is really as early as when he first turns babyface, he's already no longer really, he's, how do I put this? All right. So in the 60s, as a heel, is when he really became a made a made man, right? That's right. where he was WWF's first monster heel. He was right. main event heel in the hottest territory in the country and all that kind of thing. And he never was at that level as a face. And it's not, but when I say that, it's like, I, I want to qualify it because it's not like, oh, uh, they wouldn't give him a push and he was slipping down the card or this kind of thing. That was his choice. It was because... He was working behind the scenes. Now he had a lot more responsibilities. He didn't really want to be heavily in the mix anymore. Right. And so his role, you know, first he's managing Pedro and they had that whole thing when Pedro was world champion, but his role through most of the seventies was as, as far as the fans knew, he was the kind of guy that he would come out and have like a special attraction match. Oh, wow. It's gorilla monsoon, you know? And sometimes he'd go over if it was like kind of a lower mid card guy and, and you wanted to send people home happy. Or sometimes he would be the guy almost like what Chief J Strongbow would later be. He'd be the guy you would beat on your way to wrestling the champion, you know, like right. to, to sort of impress people. Oh, wow. He beat Gorilla Monsoon. And that sort of became his role for years, because the thing is, the Gorilla position thing is very true. I mean, that man was at that table running the show at a lot of these shows, definitely at the TVs. He was effectively what today we would call producing those shows. And let's say at the big house show, the big ones like the garden and the spectrum, even though Vince would be there, Vince senior, he would be running traffic. I mean, Vince senior was not the kind of hands-on person that Vince junior always was. He really wasn't. He would, you probably know this. He, he would set things in motion, just sort of like, this is what we're doing. We're booked out whatever amount of month. Here's what's happening tonight. Here's who's going over. And now I'm going to go hide in my office in Madison Square Garden and make some phone calls and work some newspaper reporters. And I'm not really going to. He wasn't over there like micromanaging every right. little move that everybody made. But that that would be Monsoon. That was Monsoon's role, really, more than anybody, even more than Phil Zacco. Phil Zacco was like Phil Zacco was there because in those days. You couldn't just say the wrestlers are running the show. They're promoting. Phil Zacco was there. So you had a guy who was an actual promoter. His name could be on the licenses and everything. You look at the guy. He looks like he was just born to be a, a wrestling promoter. Right. And you just you could say his name at the beginning of the show. But really, the guy who was running the thing on the boots on the ground on those shows was Gorilla Monsoon. Well, this will probably be uh, just like a footnote in your book or maybe like uh, three quarters of a page in your book. Uh, but uh, one thing that's always been kind of a fun, fun little fun fact about him was the fact that he turned heel against Backlund and wrestled him in Toronto. I mean, that's something that probably most people don't know about. But for people like McCabe and myself, you know, hardcore WWF junkies of the 70s and 80s, it's kind of fun to think of him as a heel one last time before he hang up, hang up the boots. He also worked as a heel for Carlos Colon at, around that same time, too. 
And you can see some of those. There's some promos and things where mm-hmm. he's sort of like this. I don't know how to describe it, you know, because when he was a heel in the 60s, he was this monster. He didn't talk, right, you know. Right. So it's all, it's very different. If you watch some, if you've ever seen it, some of these Puerto, Puerto Rico promos, it's like the best way I could describe it is imagine if Gorilla Monsoon, the announcer that you loved, was all of a sudden an asshole. Right? <laughs> that would be that would be what he was doing. He was like smarmy, self-assured, uh, arrogant version of the announcer gorilla monsoon. So maybe the, I don't know. The backland thing is really fascinating because um, yeah, I, when I first saw the results and I'm going through all the results, I'm going, okay, Maple Leaf gardens backland defends the title against gorilla monsoon. That's really unusual. Mm-hmm. My assumption was that it had to be face versus face. Mm-hmm. And I started asking around about it. And I think, I think you were the one. I don't know if I completely knew that it was heel versus face until mm-hmm. you had showed that to me mm-hmm. um it's hard it's you know i mean none of that stuff is on tape so you know right. it's tough it, it's 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 fun to, to think about like you mentioned those matches in puerto rico even him and bruno they 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 got their feud from 15 years earlier going like in 1978 i guess they traded the title back and forth a couple of times well yeah you know i'm gonna have an appendix but the show's just turning into talk about my gorilla monsoon book but that's okay there's <laughs> there's gonna be an appendix in the book that lists every match that they ever had gorilla monsoon and bruno san martino wow. because they wrestled each other more than anyone else for either one of those guys that's like, amazing gorilla wrestled i thought it was waldo von eric at one I time did too. I but did i crunched too. the numbers and it's gorilla monsoon he wrestled gorilla monsoon more times than any other person I think that might include tag team matches. So when I do that, I'm not sure if I'm going to include even when they teamed up with each other because they did that a lot. But I'm trying to get every single time they were ever in a ring together. And the the match, there's a match in Puerto Rico because um, Gorilla brought Bruno down there and he Bruno beat him for whatever title, uh, the Caribbean title or the Puerto Rican title or some right. title might have even been the universal title and then gorilla won it back and mm-hmm. i was very intrigued as to how that happened because bruno did not do jobs right right and they had wrestled a million times and gorilla monsoon had never other than dq and count out had never beaten mm-hmm. um bruno san martino and i found out that uh, this is actually from talking to matt farmer who mm-hmm. has all these amazing results oh he found great. out this is how they got around it. You ready? <laughs> you ready? It was a chain match. Oh, really? Classic cop out, right? It's like why they would do the cage match. So he beat him in the chain match, which I guess was like the strap match where you have to tag the four corners. And I wasn't there, but I could almost predict they did that kind of cop out finish where the heel would would win by mistake. He'd win the, you know, he'd win the strap match by mistake. Like um, maybe the baby face was dragging him. And he was secretly tagging all the corners while he was being right. dragged along. And then he leaps. I can't imagine Gorilla Monsoon leaping, but <laughs> leaps. And he tags the fourth corner and winds up stealing the win. So however it happened, he beat Bruno in a chain match. So he did not pin him or make him submit. So there's a little asterisk there. Wow. That, that's, so, that's something. Well, count me in on the book. I'm really excited about it. Uh, Thank you. It, and, you know, because you're you're my uh, only person I know who's a established wrestling author, I'll ask you this. I mean, personally, I really enjoy those books like uh, 
like Larry Manisic's book where he listed the top, his opinion of the top 50 wrestlers of all time. And I know Meltzer years and years ago did a book with John Molinaro where they put a list of a top 100 wrestlers of all time. Would that kind of a book ever kind of interest you to do a book like that? Or you're more like into the bios of top wrestlers? I'm open to anything, but I feel like I learned the hard way that the books that people most respond to are the mm -hmm. personality-driven books. Right. Like the first couple of wrestling books I wrote were more reference type. Like the FAQ book. Yeah, I did WWE Legends, which benefited from having being a WWE-branded book. So it was that was helpful. And then I did Pro Wrestling FAQ, which I poured my heart into. And it did well, but not, you know, um, not as well as I would have liked. And I think part of that is because it wasn't attached to a wrestling personality. Right. And I just think that's a big part of it. So that doesn't mean I, I would never do a book that wasn't uh, like that. I don't know if I want to do a top wrestlers of all time because it's kind of been done. Right. And um, even like the ones you've mentioned. But, you know, I have other ideas that I, I was really trying to get off the ground a coffee table art book right. on wrestling magazines. I wanted to do that very bad. I still do like 50, 60. Well, 50s through the 90s, like right. the golden age of wrestling magazines from right. from when the first one, Wrestling As You Like It, up until the internet, basically, you know, kind of hamstrings all magazines, not just wrestling magazines. And um, I was, I wanted to do it, but the, the what I kept hearing from publishers was at that time, this was when we were just coming out of COVID and everybody was saying, well, with supply chain issues and things, those type of big hardcover art books are very expensive to make the cost of papers through the roof and all that kind of thing. And, you know, they wanted to revisit it down the road. And I really, I don't think they were blowing me off. I really do believe that. But then when I had, you know, for example, ECW press said to me, because I had mentioned possibly doing a gorilla monsoon book, they had said to me, you know, they had told me that we, the coffee table book, the wrestling magazine art book, that's kind of expensive. Let's hold off on that. You can shop that around if you want to other people. They're probably going to tell you the same thing. But <laughs> if you want to do the Gorilla Monsoon book, you could start tomorrow. And I was like, well, That's okay, cool. let's do the Gorilla Monsoon book. I'll put the I'll put the wrestling magazine one on the back burner. And, you know, so I'd like to do it at some point. I really, really would because there's that has never been done. It's been done about every other kind of, you know, pop culture You've got they did it. They've done it for Mac for comic books a million different ways to Sunday. Those coffee table type books. They've done it right. for like men's adventure books, Playboy, right. all those kind of uh, pulpy subgenres of of twentieth century printed entertainment. I just feel like it's gotta be. It, there's gotta be a market for that for 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 classic wrestling magazine covers and layouts and things. I would love to do it. Well, I, I got to ask you this question then, uh, and and I mean, uh, I, I'll ask you, then I'll give you my answer. But of all the, the, you know, you've you've seen a ton of wrestling magazine covers. Is there any one that stands out the most to you? Like, would you say, hey, that one was the best one, or do you have a favorite? It depends what you mean by best, because, <laughs> but like, if it's because for me, the most memorable ones are always going to be the blood-soaked ones. You right, know? right, right. Like, I always go back to the Bobby Heenan one. My God, Bobby, what happened to your face? Classic, that one. classic. I, well, I loved it so much, I even brought it up to Bobby's daughter, Jessica. 
And she told me on the show when I had her that Bob, that her son, so Bobby Heenan's grandson, has that cover like over his bed yeah. in his room. <laughs> like that's my me. that's my grandpa. Yeah. Oh my so, god. So that one also, I wish I had it in front of me. People will post it or whatever, but there was a great cover like that with Superstar Graham. A oh, really? really crazy one. I actually have it where um it was either Inside Wrestling or it was it was a Weston magazine. And you had Superstar Graham with his eyes bulging out, his mouth wide open. There's blood pouring down his face. And the way the lighting, the way the camera flash or whatever is going off, you could see it's really grotesque. You could see down his throat like you could see whatever that thing is called that hangs in the back of your throat. You could right. see it. And there's actually some blood in his mouth. I mean. It's intense. It's it's wild to think that something like that would have been just sitting there on the rack at a newsstand that people were just walking by. There's that one. There's a great cover of, uh, I think it's Wrestling World, where it's Leo Namalini, I think it is, and he's in profile, mm -hmm. and there's a boot smashing his <laughs> face. Like, his entire face is smashed by this boot. That's another great one. I love that cover. Yeah, I, I, the the one that, that is my favorite. Just to me, it's completely iconic. It's the one. It's the wrestler from I think 1976, and it, it's it's Bruno and Superstar on the mat together. Superstar Billy Graham, and they're it, like they're they're powering. They're they're on the mat like clenched in the the heat of battle. And then there's the big headline above that says, "Before 22,000 stunned fans, Superstar Graham destroys Bruno." And you know, truth be told, uh, Superstar won on a countout. He didn't destroy Bruno, but what a cover! What a cover! I mean, yeah, the cover lines sometimes were really what made it more than anything. I um, I used to do this thing on Twitter before. This is before when I had a little more time on my hands than I have sure. now. I used to do daily wrestling mag. It was my hashtag. And I would have a cover of a classic wrestling magazine pretty much every day from my own collection that I would post because I've accumulated over the years through various uh, means, not all of which I'm comfortable <laughs> disclosing publicly. But I, I have amassed an amazing collection of wrestling magazines. And I, I sometimes love the cover lines, too, more than anything. Right. There's one they could they could tell you so much. Like I discovered there's a few things. There's a great cover of wrestling. I think it was Wrestling Review. I want to say 1968. They had Earl Maynard on the cover. And I broke my back searching as hard as I could to verify this. And I am pretty much 100 percent sure that it's the first wrestling magazine to feature primarily a black wrestler on the cover. Wow. And I not not in a little inset or anything because they've done that with Bobo, but just as the cover guy. And I have that. Um, there's another one. This is one of those things that I love. I've mentioned, but well, I don't love it. It makes me depressed because it shows some some of the cover lines show you um, how the mindset or things that were so highly regarded at you know, how easy it is for people to be forgotten. Let's just say because there's one cover line I saw. I think it was on the ring wrestling, which is my all time favorite wrestling magazine. Yeah, mine they, too. It was so legit. And so yeah. like, it was like you were reading the ring boxing magazine, except it just happened to be about wrestling. And they had this amazing cover line. This was maybe in like 1970. And the cover line said, Joe Stecker, 
was he the greatest of all time? Now think about that. In 50 years time, 1970 was 53 years ago. We have gone from asking the question, is Joe Stecker, could he have been the greatest of all time? To now asking the question, who is Joe Stecker? <laughs> right. right? It's very humbling when you think about like, is that going to be what if in 50 years from now, will, will people not know who Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan are? Who knows? I mean, we have much more um, recorded evidence that's, you know, the video will never go away. So things like that. But I mean, it's it's humbling when you think about the people, the figures that are so important to us in wrestling and beyond wrestling are so easily lost to the sands of time if enough time passes. Well, that, that's a great point you made about uh, Joe uh, Stecker. The uh, but it really it brings brings us full circle back to the beginning of the conversation. You know, when Bruno was estranged from WWE for that 25 year period, you know they never mentioned his name on TV. He was never really on the website or whatever. But but uh, they announced it on Monday Night Raw. They taped the show in Atlanta, and they announced that he was going in. And I think the next day on WWE.com, it's so funny they had a they had a big uh, you know they mentioned that they had these different blurbs on their website saying, well, who is Bruno Sammartino? And they posted all these questions like, you know, just who is this man? And but I mean, it was just so funny. It'd be like saying, you know, who is this George Washington that started the country? You know. And, they have to re-educate people. That's the thing. You know, yeah. it's it's funny how now, um, and I think it's it shows you the power of WWE and their marketing machine because they did do a damn good job of erasing his memory for a very long time. And nowadays, it's very – he's a name that comes up very commonly, even among young people who never saw him as, oh, yeah, that guy, he's like the greatest of all time. Like everybody knows that. It's sort of like the way a, a baseball fan might talk about Joe DiMaggio. Like we didn't right. see him. You know, right. he was he was playing when my grandfather was watching. Or, or a boxer like, you know, people will know Muhammad Ali or Joe Lewis or somebody. Like um, Bruno is now that figure. And I think it's because he went in the WWE Hall of Fame. I think if he hadn't have right. gone in and if they hadn't gotten behind getting him over as there, he was there. What Joe DiMaggio was to the Yankees organization, very New York centric. And then sure. when Joe died, it was Yogi Berra, you know, mm -hmm. uh, um, George Steinbrenner, right? George Steinbrenner, the second Joe DiMaggio passed away. He had to bury the hatchet and make nice with Yogi Berra. If people That's don't right. remember, they were feuding forever since Yogi got fired as the manager because George knew Yogi Berra is now my emeritus legend and I have to make nice with this guy. He's going to be the new face of the the old school Yankee memory and legacy. And that's kind of like what happened with Bruno. They buried the hatchet and then they started getting behind Bruno as, yes, this man is the Babe Ruth of WWE. And now because of that, it's just commonly assumed by the by the really the youngest of fans, as long as you're they're an adult, I suppose, that they know who that is and why he's important. That was not the case, I don't think, 20 years ago. Oh, you're you're right, and I'm so I'm so glad that they uh, periodically release new Bruno T-shirts and things. And I mean, I wish they would release more more stuff to do with him, but the T-shirts are at least uh, something in the right direction. And and just in case anybody from Peacock is listening to your show, uh, there was a show I saw on HBO as a kid. This was was about a month after the Shea Stadium match with Bruno against Stan Hansen. 
Bruno and Monsoon teamed up to go against the Executioners at the Nassau Coliseum, and that match was on HBO, and that's another card that has never seen the light of day. Maybe someday Peacock will add that to the uh, the roster. That'd be nice. There's some of those holy grails. There's that one that everybody always talks about where it's Vince McMahon and Gordon Soley. Yes. Right? From the and Omni. that was, yes. was it at, it was at the Omni, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That was um, on HBO as well. Yep. And it was being used to promote the Anoki and Ali show. I think it was that whole ramp up that was happening. So all the promoters were working together. Never seen the light of day. I've heard rumors that, you know, I've heard rumors that it's sort of like what Let It Be was to the Beatles, where (laughs) Vince, it was like a Vince edict. I I just don't think he wanted that out there. I've heard that. Or like um, the Star Wars holiday special, how George Lucas always said, that's never seeing the light of day. Um, (laughs) I think that that was the WWF version of that. I think it was a Vince call. At least that's what I've heard. I could be completely wrong, but that should get out there. You know, I mean, HBO had a whole history with the WWF in the 70s. That's almost forgotten. Like people think about, okay, we know it used to be on the MSG network and it was on U- the early years of USA network. But I mean, they were on HBO, I want to say, starting during while Pedro was the champion. They were, That's right. they were airing That's right. cards yeah. on HBO. And in fact, I think they were doing that. And look, HBO was not what it would later become. Right. Uh, but that was even before Georgia Championship Wrestling was on TBS nationally. So, I mean, that was the very beginning shot of wrestling on cable nationally. Um, And, in fact, I think it even came up in the Sheik book where it's one of those horrible moments where you just know, like, oh, this guy, if he had just made better decisions, where the Sheik's producer um, had tried to, his TV producer, had been pushing to get their wrestling on HBO and then later on Showtime in the 70s and both times the sheik shot it down because he didn't want to pay whatever they were asking and it was just so incredibly short-sighted and then the wwf just like slipped in there and 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 got it yeah that's very interesting i never knew that yeah yeah and i mean look they had they had the benefit new york had madison square garden you have that the rub from boxing being at the garden and all that but detroit's also is a major city and at that time this would have been the very early 70s. That Detroit territory was hot. I mean, it, it would was. have made it would have made sense to do it. In fact, it might it might have even been hotter than the garden was at that time. Yeah, in the early 70s, the cards were loaded. And and from what I've learned, uh, I guess once Pedro got to be the champion, uh, you know, even though they did bring a lot of major stars from all over the world for Pedro to wrestle, like Blassie from the West Coast and Ray Stevens and others. I mean, it, it did seem like uh, they were really hurting at the box office once Pedro took over. Yeah, what I've always heard was that New York was fine. The Garden was fine. It was just everywhere else that they were right. fighting and struggling because, you know, I guess what it comes down to is when you think about how ethnic wrestling was back then, especially up here anyway, um, you know, Bruno, I think, may have just had a more universal appeal. Like, for example, I think Pedro was very popular with Hispanic fans, right. understandably. And they were there was a huge concentration in New York City of Hispanic fans. It wasn't like that in every city on the on in the Northeast, on the East Coast. And I think that th- there was another difference with Bruno, too. 
I think with Bruno, it was different from Pedro. And again, I wasn't there. I'll get a lot of know-it-alls that were there that will <laughs> jump all over me. But Bruno had Bruno didn't just appeal to Italian fans. He appealed across a broad range of immigrant people. Like he also appealed to Hispanics the way that Raka had. He appealed to the Greeks and the, you know, the, the Russian Jews and just all kinds of uh, immigrant groups he was popular with. And you also had a Polish as well. You also had the fact that there were Italians in more places than there were Hispanics in that era. Like like you had Boston, you had Philly, you had Pittsburgh and D.C. and up in New England. And, you know, they were they were really they had about a 50 year head start on (laughs) on spreading out all over the northeastern U.S. So I think that's why Bruno was hard to replace. Very hard to replace. Look at what happened. Like even with with Backlund, I mean, um, I know you and John are always debating the merits of Bob Backlund on your show, but sure, I don't think anybody. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, what do you think about this? I feel like Backlund really never got out of the shadow of Bruno San Martino. There was always the idea that yes, Bob Backlund is the world champion, and we love him, but Bruno's Bruno, and Bruno is a bigger deal than the title. Yeah, I, I think that the the fans – in that day, because I think fans of all ages really believed in the title. I mean, they really thought the WWF title really meant something. And um, and because Bruno had made it such an important title, um, it just – I mean, Backlund was over. Don't, don't get me wrong. He was definitely over, but – Bruno resonated in the sense of people felt that they knew him or that he was family. Backlund was just like, hey, this is the kid we're going to root for. He's he's all-American. He's the you know, all-American boy, as they tried to dub him. Um, it's just that just like Backlund with like like with a r- long-running TV show. I mean, it ran for five or six years. People got tired of it after a while. And when Hogan came in, it was kind of refreshing and new and different. And I think, um, you know, he definitely... Obviously, Hulk brought in a whole new audience that wasn't there before. The marketing, of course, was different by that time, too. So, But Hogan had that same thing going for him that Bruno did. where, And I was there, so I, I could speak on this. I was sure. there. It didn't matter who was the champ. Even after right. he had his big run, 84 to 88, and then he'd periodically get it back and other people would hold it, he was always bigger than he whoever. Was. You know, when Savage had the belt, Savage never replaced Hogan. When Warrior got it, he certainly didn't replace Hogan. Then you, they wanted him to. I feel like with Savage, the plan never was for Savage to replace Hogan. I think he was just keeping it warm because Hogan yes. was making movies and things. But they really wanted Warrior to replace him, and he absolutely did not. And then you, you know, you'd have heels. Flair got it, and when Bret Hart got it that first time, Hogan was still sort of lingering on the periphery, and it was like we were all just. I don't want. I, I may use the word dreading, but we were all waiting for, okay, Hogan's going to step back in and get it back. And he did one last time. But there was always that thing, like, I feel like it was with Bruno, that whether he's got the belt or not, he's the number one guy in the company. Yeah. And, and, and that's that's very, very honest. And I, I think with Brett, uh, Brett, Brett kind of channeled that same kind of, uh, you know, love from the fans that Bruno had. I think, you know, I think, 
the fans that like Bruno saw him as real, as legitimate. And I think that in the 90s, uh, his fans looked at Brett the same way. I mean, he didn't have the huge throng of fans that Bruno did, but, uh, you know, it was Brett and in uh, Austin and people that really, you know, brought the Attitude Era back. Of course, Vince is a character himself. Uh, I mean, they all played a, a role in it, but, uh, but yeah, the wrestling from the 70s, the wrestling to the 90s, man, it really changed a lot. <laughs> it was quite different. Yeah, yeah, it did. But I think that, uh, I actually think, I don't know where I get this impression from, I think he said it in in a couple of interviews. Um, I think Bruno had a high regard for Brett. I think he, yes, he it, did. admired yeah. him as a worker, as a champion, as just a standard bearer. I know, you know, he wasn't ple- pleased with the company, but I think he saw it as a step in the right direction to have a champion like that. Part of it was Stu Hart had a lot of respect from from a lot of the old timers. Right. Uh, Monsoon felt the same way. That's another thing I'm uncovering uncovering for the book and one of the reasons why i'm having bret hart uh do the the uh forward for it right is that gorilla monsoon as people could probably figure out who were watching tv back then he was pushing hard for bret hart behind the scenes right. he was a big cheerleader of bret hart's excellence of execution the whole thing there wasn't a match he ever had that gorilla called where he didn't mention his entire family tree and calgary and everything <laughs> else right he really liked him because he had some of that old school legitimacy to him. And a lot of those old school guys, not the ones that were complete degenerate carnies, but a lot of those old school guys, they did have an appreciation for good workers. You know, they would never call it an art, but they had an appreciation for the art of wrestling and working. And, And there were guys like, monsoon and bruno who who saw brett as like a throwback and they liked that oh yeah and, and brett brett really uh he carried the mantle for the company for a long time and even when he went to wcw i mean he had inspired uh, that generation that followed after him guys like benoit yeah. and edge and christian those types of workers and uh you know and, and brett is just um you know, has such a remarkable body of work that he can be proud of. And, and I think his fans to this day look at him the much way that guys like McAdam and I look at Bruno and, and, and Backlund to a lesser degree. Yeah. And they've, he sort of kept that tradition going. It's kind of funny when you think about the people that younger fans looked up to and grew up watching those people are kind of like the bridge to the people who came before them because of right who they looked up to and who they worked with. And it sort of creates this continuity, which people like us, I think find very fast, uh, satisfying, I should say, because it, it, it creates this sense of um, linking the past to the present, you know, which I think wrestling needs more of. Absolutely. Well, this has been great, Steve, just as I knew it would be great. And um, I know, you know, I don't even need to mention it because I would venture to say anybody listening to this knows full well about the Stick to Wrestling podcast. But just in case they don't, you want to just let us know how people could find the show and all that kind of thing. Oh, sure. It's a Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam. It's part of the Arcadian Vanguard uh, podcast network. We usually drop a new show every Friday. It usually comes out about noon. And the shows are kind of like Brian's. They're usually about an hour, maybe a little bit longer. And uh, we like to cover wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We've been doing a lot of 80s lately. But uh, 
you know, I, I think it's a fun show. John is, is so uh, knowledgeable, and I like to throw in a bone here and there, and we have some fun. And, uh, you know, the show seems to be very popular. We have a really nice Facebook group, like your Facebook group is growing by the day. And, um, you know, I, and I thank you for having me on. And, and it was just great talking with you, Brian. I, I love the books and uh, look forward to the Monsoon book. And uh, I enjoy listening to your show every Wednesday when it drops. No problem. And I love listening. This is Mutual Admiration Society. <laughs> I love listening to Stick to Wrestling also. I, I listen to it every single week, even the weeks you're not on, Steve. I still listen <laughs> every Please week. Do. Please do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it very much. And I'll, I'll put in my official request, like John always likes to say, uh, we cover the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but really it's mostly the 80s. I want to say I'd like to put in a formal request for more 70s. Yes. I, all right. I would love more 70s stuff on there. But uh, yeah, it's a great show. It's a must listen. It's one of my can't miss podcasts every week. So everybody should check it out if they haven't. Um, all right. Well, thanks so great. much, Steve. Well, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for the time. And you enjoy the rest of your day. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Steve Generelli, the first Shut Up and Wrestle conversation of 2024. Thank you, Steve, once again for coming on the show. And I hope you continue to listen to Shut Up and Wrestle throughout 2024. My guest for next week's show, this is going to be a cool one, is John Finkel, who is the author of the upcoming biography of Macho Man Randy Savage, which is coming from ECW Press next spring. However, I have John on the show next week, so make sure you don't miss it. Other Shut Up and Wrestle guests on the way, Lucha Libre and Japanese wrestling expert Roy Lucher will be here. Women's wrestling expert Kristen Ashley, a colleague of mine from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, is on the way as well as wrestling author and historian Steve Johnson. And as I promised, I will be having film critic, filmmaker, and longtime wrestling fan BJ Colangelo on the show with me to discuss the film The Iron Claw. That one's coming sooner rather than later. So just keep in mind it will be a spoiler-filled episode if you haven't seen the movie. But that is on the way. Lots of other fun stuff. On the way here at Shut Up and Wrestle, you can find us in so many ways. There's our website, suawpod.com, as well as the usual places that you find podcasts. Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You know the drill. Go find the show and enjoy it. And while you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Lots of great things always happening there. Additional content every single day on the Facebook page for this show. If you'd like to contribute to the show to support the show, and I want to thank the people who have been doing exactly that. If you would like to join those people, you can contribute via Venmo or Cash App on my Twitter profile, Brian R. Solomon. You will find a contribution button at the top of my profile. And if you'd like to use PayPal, for example, you can reach me there at Solomon at yahoo.com. Some of the other projects that I work on, the Wrestling News, as I mentioned at the top of the show, find it at the wrestlingnews.com or 
the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. My books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic and superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. They make great late Christmas presents if you're still looking for one of those, even if you're not. You can find them wherever books are sold. Amazon's the easiest way, but they're also in stores. And I've got some autographed copies. If anyone would like one, you can reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can find at pwi-online.com, as well as Inside the Ropes, which you could find at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And if you're looking for me on social media, you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You will find my author page on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you in this new year that wherever you go, there you are. So long, wrestling fans.